Well, my name is Nate Herbst. I know some of you. I particularly enjoy talking about these things with Caleb over across from me. And I definitely look forward to getting to know the rest of you. And I'm not a philosopher. I'll just say that right up front. My degree in school was in chemistry, and I was nearly derailed from that by this philosophy department. So there you go. Philosophy departments can be evil. I just got so engrossed in a couple of the classes I took with Dougal that I didn't want anything to do with chemistry, biology, math. I just wanted to spend all my time over here. And that lasted for a few years and got to take several classes and enjoyed it a ton, but ended up finishing out with a chemistry degree, but love philosophy. So I'm not a, philosophy stu or a, a philosopher, but I, I do like philosophy. I'm now in full-time ministry, so I'm not using my chemistry per se, and that has a lot to do with my passion in life, which is telling people about real hope that they can have in Jesus. And so that might be my bias, if you will, as we start, but I hope that you enjoy what I have to share. I've also been somewhat distracted this week. My first son and third child was born six days ago, and uh, it's hard to... to get away from him to spend time preparing for something like this because it is so special to be able to hold this this precious little boy and he's at home right now enjoying his sisters and his mom so i'm excited to be here and i hope that some of what i shared tonight hits home with you and i don't know what the time frame is here justin do you know yeah typically um you know we end at 8 30 come hell or high water cool so typically people talk for 30 or 45 minutes and then we have Discussion as long as it lasts, but no later than 8.30. Cool. So I'll stop before 8, and whatever time we have left would be fun for Q&A discussion, yeah. things like that. So as I discuss the issue of faith in academia, I want to focus on three different areas. And those would be, one, the Enlightenment, and two, a crisis, and three, an awakening. And I think all three of those are going to be relevant to where each one of us are in life and whether that's in an academic setting, like you just discussed with Cedarville, or whether it's in real life decisions. I think that there are some pertinent things that can be drawn. So I wanted to start with a basic definition of faith, and it's something that I kind of disagree with, and I'll clarify what I think might be a better definition of faith afterwards. But dictionary.com gives the following definitions for faith. Confidence or trust in a person or thing, belief that is not based on proof, Belief in God or in the doctrines of teachings or religion. Belief in anything as a code of ethics, standards of merit, etc. Or a system of religious belief. So I think when we hear that belief that is not based on proof as a definition for faith, I think that's kind of a bit too broad. So I'd like to kind of clarify uh, what I think might be a better definition for faith. And I hope that this resonates with you. So... I would like to say that faith is taking a step based on the evidence beyond where the evidence alone can take you. Did you get that? So faith is taking a step based on the evidence beyond where the evidence alone can take you. And I want to contrast two different perspectives of faith. Sometimes we hear of a blind leap of faith, and a lot of times faith is assumed to be that very type of faith, just a blind leap into the unknown. But I think that a better perspective of faith is a confident step of faith. So it's faith based on good evidence or data. And a great example would be my wife. I trust that my wife loves me, and I guess I could never prove that to anyone. But I trust that it is true, and that's my belief. And I live my life as if that's true, by faith. <laughs> and it's working out so far. Like I said, I have a brand new baby boy. So anyway, I'd like to define faith for this talk at least as taking a step based on evidence beyond where the evidence alone 
can take you. The real difference, again, between these two is, I think, substantive. A blind leap of faith, I don't think, is faith at all. I think that's just ignorance, right? And I think a lot of times, and I'll clarify this tonight, but when that's been defined as faith, faith has got a bad rap as a result of that. People have seen it as just this blind, ignorant jump into the unknown. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. So a lot of the bad rap of faith has come from, I think, uh, bad semantics and just a wrong perspective of faith in the first place. And from a Christian perspective, a blind leap of faith is definitely not what the Bible talks about when it talks about faith. And the Bible talks a whole lot about faith. It says without faith, it's impossible to please God. And it says that it is by faith that we come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's not talking about this blind leap, but rather taking a step based on what I know to be true and what I've learned to be true as I've searched. So I think it's important to talk a little bit about the Enlightenment because before the Enlightenment, academia didn't seem to have a problem with faith. In fact, Harvard, I think, is a good example. In the mid-1600s, right about when the Enlightenment period was beginning in Europe, Harvard's original motto was truth for Christ and the church. Definitely no problem with faith in that motto. And in their 1646 rules and precepts, they say, check this out, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. And seeing the Lord only giveth wisdom, let everyone seriously set himself by prayer and secret to seek it of him. Everyone shall so exercise himself to the reading of Scripture twice a day that he shall be ready to give such an account of his proficiency therein, both in theoretical observations of language and logic, and in practical and spiritual truths, as his tutor shall require, according to his ability, seeing the entrance of the word giveth light, it giveth understanding to the simple. So obviously we see this pre-enlightenment academic setting did not have a problem with faith. Around that same time in the mid-1600s, and continuing through the end of the 1700s, the Enlightenment began. And during this time, rationalism and empiricism began to supplant religious faith and faith in general. And there came to be a disregard, I think, for all types of faith or any perspective that claimed to derive from faith. And the rationalists, included Descartes and Spinoza, believed that all knowledge was a priori and derived simply through reason. And I think that there was an aspect of trusting by faith in the power and validity of reason to know um, much about reality. There was a whole lot that had to be ultimately taken on faith about reality right from the start. Reason is important, but alone, it can only take us so far. And I think that all of us are probably very aware of that. Uh, and the empiricists, including Locke and Hume, recognized some of the problems um, with the rationalists and believe that all knowledge was a posteriori and based on empirical data and understanding the physical universe around us, science, if you will. And obviously, we know that science can tell us a whole lot about the natural world, but it is also limited. And I'll touch on that in a minute. It can't tell us everything. Going back to the example of my wife, it can't tell me a whole lot about whether or not she really loves me, right? So it is limited and it has a field and domain that it's great in, but it can only take us so far on its own. Hume, following some of this, doubted our ability to know causal relationships and non-empirical knowledge. And uh, he obviously doubted 
these metaphysical claims or faith claims, so to say. He famously asserted that any truth claim that did not, quote, contain abstract reasoning concerning quantity or number or any experimental reasoning concerning matter of factor existence should be committed to the flames. He failed to realize that that very statement did not contain abstract reasoning concerning quantity or number or any experimental reasoning concerning matter of factor existence. And the reality is that his own statement should have applied to itself. And again, we're left with this dilemma. Empiricism is good, and it can tell me a whole lot about the universe, but it can only tell me so much, and it only has a domain that it works in. And he and the rest of the empiricists took by faith the sufficiency of empirical reasoning and data. And I think on a side note, as I discussed, modern academia has done the same with science. Science is seen as reigning supreme in academia, I believe, and I think more so outside of the actual halls of science. As a chemistry student here, my professors were full of humility about the boundaries of science. They were quick to tell all of us students that science is a great tool, but it surely can't prove anything, and it surely can only get us so far. And it's always going to tell us a little bit about the universe around us today, but it can't tell me anything conclusive necessarily about things outside of that, whether they be in the past or whether they be outside of our uh, analytical potential, right? And so I think that chemistry and science are important. And then, Root, what was your degree in? Or what's your PhD in? Industrial engineering. Industrial engineering. Another scientist. And I think that science is important, but it has a domain that it, that it works in, and it should not go beyond that. And it can't go beyond that in many different areas. Again, faith is required. So science is important, but alone, again, it can only take us so far, and it doesn't absolve us of the need for faith. And in fact, I think a lot of science rests on faith in certain assumptions. And those assumptions are taken um, to be true every time we perform science or believe science. But a lot of them ultimately are taken as assumptions. Kant recognized problems in both <laughs> the empirical perspectives and the rational perspectives and developed transcendental idealism and synthesized the two, he correctly realized that neither was sufficient in and of itself, but there was a huge price to pay in his synthesis. And Norman Geisler summarizes this saying, and I'm going to quote, he says, the genius of Kant was in synthesizing these two divergent epistemologies. The empiricists, he concluded, are right that we are born blank slates with no innate ideas. The content of all knowledge comes a posteriori from experience. On the other hand, the rationalists correctly stress that there is an a priori dimension to knowledge. While the content of all knowledge comes through the senses, the form or structure is provided by the a priori forms of sensation and categories of the mind. The price of the Kantian synthesis was high. Lost in the model of the knowing process was the ability to know reality. If Kant was right, we know how we know, but we no longer really know. For if all knowledge is formed or structured by a priori categories, we can only know things as they appear to us, not as they are in themselves. We can know phenomena, but not noumena. Thus, the net epistemological gain was the ultimate ontological loss. Reality, or the thing in itself, including God, is forever beyond us. And I think that that is obviously um, the case in a lot of sense, and it, and it leads us again to this point where we are not absolved of the need for faith. Geisler continues stating, the argument that we cannot know the real world is self-defeating. The very statement, we cannot know reality, is a statement that presupposes knowledge about reality. 
So either one must be an agnostic about everything or believe some things by faith. And I think that all knowledge rests on faith in some capacity, right? And there are some things taken by faith in all true knowledge of the universe. Uh, For Kant, that included the basic reliability of our five senses, which had to be taken. And if those were not trustworthy, all knowledge would be completely impossible. And he correctly realized that. C.S. Lewis agreed, stating a universe whose only claim to be believed in rests on the validity of inference must not start telling us that inference is invalid. Right? So we all realize that there are assumptions and that there's inference that a lot of our knowledge is based on concerning the reality of the universe around us. And a lot of those are taken by faith, and faith has a role in all knowledge. So Kant was a genius in many regards, but yet again, alone, can only take us so far. Um, Writing after the Enlightenment, G.K. Chesterton said, in almost a prophetic way, we are long past talking about whether an unbeliever should be punished for being irreverent. It is now thought irreverent to be a believer. And I think the result of a lot of the Enlightenment momentum and direction was the perspective that any position of faith was nonsense and ridiculous and crazy and should be strayed from. And with that, I think there was a lot of um, ignorance about the fact that knowledge in general had a lot taken on faith. Uh, So Bertrand Russell, everybody's favorite atheist, got involved pretty far after this in the 1800s and realized the need for both reason and empiricism. He stated, reason is concerned with matters of fact, some observed, some inferred. He was outspoken about his opposition to Christianity and belief in God, but failed to realize that a lot of his own accusations applied to himself. I got to talk to Caleb's class last semester on atheism and uh, just had a great time with you guys. I was privileged to have that opportunity. And I mentioned this there, but Russell came up with the famous example of the celestial teapot and said the burden of proof rests on the believer to give evidence for the existence of God, not on the unbeliever to give evidence for his non-existence. Seems somewhat straightforward. Russell then claimed that belief in God is an argument from ignorance, right? That uh, the existence of God uh, requires that the believer prove such a thing, not that the unbeliever give evidence for his non-existence. And I think that that would be a correct statement. I just don't know of very many theists that would say there's no evidence for God, right? I think that that is kind of a a wrong accusation in the first place. So Russell would claim that this belief in God is an argument from ignorance. And ironically, I think in a sense that this is the same kind of argument that Russell makes for God's non-existence. He claims that there's no evidence for God's existence, so he does not exist. It seems like there's a bit of circular reasoning going on in his whole argument against God's existence, to me. Um, He correctly retreated to agnosticism later in life, realizing that he couldn't disprove, if you want to use that word, God's existence. Again, though, retreating and and coming back to this perspective of agnosticism and not really knowing. The question of what can be known about reality has been hotly debated since the Enlightenment and continues to be debated today. All sides take various issues on faith. And I really think that there are only two different options. Option number one is dogmatic skepticism about everything, which in a weird twist I think also has to be taken somewhat on faith. Faith that you can't know anything. And G.K. Chesterton reminds us the mere questioner has knocked his head against the limits of human thought and cracked it. I think when we get to this position of pure skepticism, 
we have to be skeptical of our skepticism and it falls apart. I think the only other option is knowledge which includes aspects of faith, right? Which I don't think need to be taken as blind leaps of faith. I think we can have good evidence for those and reasons for those, but faith nonetheless, nonetheless in a sense. Uh, a couple different examples that I haven't gotten to touch on a lot would be historical knowledge, right? We all trust that we can know things about history and about the past, and that's taken on faith, right? Taken on the faith that certain reports from the past are accurate, that we can trust those historical accounts and so forth. Again, like I talked about in relationships, we all base knowledge and relationships on faith, whether that be love, whether that be hate, whether that be whether or not Keith thinks I'm a moron or a friend. <laughs> See, we all take so much in our daily lives on faith. You take on faith that you're going to get out of college and have a degree that's going to get you a better job. And in this economy, that might not be the case. But there's so much that we take on faith. And I think it's ludicrous to come to the other end of the spectrum where we say that faith has no place in academia or in our daily lives. Um, life's existential questions are only going to be answered with an aspect of faith. Why you're here on this planet. What will happen after you die? What your purpose is here? How you should live and what you should do and how you should act and what's right or wrong. All these huge questions can only be answered fundamentally with some reference to faith. A test tube doesn't tell me whether or not abortion is wrong, just to bring up a hot topic issue, right? There are so many aspects of faith that are required when we think about life's greatest existential questions. So having rejected faith in academia in many ways, I think we've come to a point of a crisis, both in academia, but also in society as a result. So we've gone from an enlightenment to a crisis. And if all knowledge requires faith, a faithless society is in trouble, right? Institutionalized discrimination, bias, and bigotry are widespread in academia. And that's kind of a bold statement. But I think that there is a tendency to observe everything from a naturalistic perspective. And this has even infiltrated theology. And as theologians think about scripture, for example, many theologians in today's academic settings do so from a very naturalistic standpoint, assuming that prophecy can't be the case, assuming that miracles did not happen. So naturalism and faithlessness Caleb Valdez, glad to see you, buddy, have infiltrated all these different domains, even the domain of faith itself. And I think that we are seeing a crisis as a result of it. As described, the Enlightenment fallout has contributed to this, but there are other things that have contributed to it as well. Methodological naturalism is important. It's important to do science based on methodological naturalism. But that has oftentimes been extrapolated ad hoc into metaphysical naturalism. And there's no way to support metaphysical naturalism, although that happens throughout academia. S secular humanist propaganda has also played a role. Uh, two of the foundational principles of the secular humanist declaration are religious skepticism and the separation of church and state. And they have made sure that these fundamentals have been instituted throughout society and in modern education. Those two are aspects of the Secular Humanist Declaration, and they've been very successful at 
propagating their ideology throughout society, I believe, and concerning separation of church and state, because I think it contributes, it contributes to this anti-faith perspective that we often see. Um, the separation of church and state, this famous quote, doesn't come from our Constitution. And I've been faced with this doing ministry on this campus even. I've been told by administrators, we have to preserve separation of church and state, and things like that. What people fail to realize is there's nowhere in the Constitution that we see separation of church and state. We see the Establishment Clause, which is there to preserve and protect religious freedom. And Thomas Jefferson coined the term separation of church and state in a private letter to a constituent who was worried that the government was going to take away religious freedoms. And he used that to say that the government has put up an effective separation of church and state so the government cannot infringe on your religious liberties had nothing to do with limiting religious liberties or expression anywhere in society, but rather it was a protection of the government from infringing on your religious liberties. I guess just on a side note, the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, are all negative liberties in that sense. They're guarantees of what the government can't do against you. And uh, I, I grew up all my teenage years in a communist slash socialist country where people didn't share the freedoms that we have here. So I'm pretty passionate about the freedoms that we get to express in this country. But there are a few reasons that this discrimination persists, I think, in academia and society. First of all, like I said earlier, it might be semantics. Faith is described oftentimes incorrectly as a blind leap of faith, as an ignorant jump into the unknown. And of course, such ignorance should never be condoned in any kind of society, right? We should all learn. We should all base our beliefs in evidence and in reasoning. But faith isn't just a blind leap into the unknown. Similarly, revisionist history contributes to faith's bad name. I would encourage you to read What's So Great About Christianity, chapter 10. Dinesh D'Souza devotes the entire chapter to this topic. And I am not a Catholic, and I am not trying to absolve the Catholic Church of all wrongdoing. It must be noted, however, that the Catholic Church's supposed opposition to Galileo's scientific findings has been exaggerated extremely. Uh, and there was a lot more going on than just opposition to his science, including some of his personal attacks on the Pope. But that's neither here nor there. I'm not trying to absolve them of responsibility. And it should be noted that the Catholic Church actually apologized for this in, uh, I think, in 2000, if I'm not mistaken. But the battle between faith and science has been largely exaggerated. I think that's the main point that I want to convey. And one of the important things that we should see today is the bias-driven research that contributes to faith's bad name. And I know I'm going to step on some toes here, and this is coming more to the science perspective. And so during the Q&A time, I'd love to talk about it more. It's something that I enjoy. But I think that evolution is a modern example of bias-driven research that contributes to a poor perspective of faith across the academic spectrum. Now, there are a few reasons that evolution has major problems. But I want to preface that with a statement by my professor of inorganic chemistry right here at this college. And he introduced the subject in the first of both classes that I took with him. The first day, he talked about the theory of evolution. And he called it the faith myth of science. He was quick to acknowledge that science can only tell us so much about the past. Science is meant to tell me about the world of today that I can test around me. I can't reproduce evolution in a laboratory. And, of course, there might be a, another semantical issue there, 
people might try to say that some aspects of natural selection and some of this are evolution, but I think they're confusing terms, and I'll explain that more in a minute. So anyway, and if naturalism is the case, evolution is and has been called, I didn't coin this term, but it's been called the only game in town, right? In other words, if naturalism in a metaphysical sense is the rule of the universe, so to say, then there has to be a naturalistic explanation for everything that you see around you, and specifically for the biodiversity of life. That being understood, you have to have a way to get there. And that bias drove evolutionary perspective, not the empirical data themselves. Right? And I'll explain why. There are several reasons that evolution is problematic. One, the transitionary evidence is lacking. The fossil record is far from complete, and it is conjecture at best. When we see similar features and similar organisms throughout the fossil record, all that tells me is that there are similar features and similar organisms. That doesn't imply causal relationships between the two. So even though the transitionary evidence is lacking, and Caleb and I talked about this, great paleontologists like Stephen Jay Gould will quickly admit, and a direct quote from him is, every paleontologist knows that the fossil record contains precious little in the way of intermediary forms. He was willing to go out on a limb and say what was true. I'm not going to try and say, oh, he was a creationist as a result of that. He came up with punctuated equilibrium. So he was an evolutionist. But punctuated equilibrium, by definition, happens so quickly that it's not preserved in the fossil record. He tried to fit his theory of evolution to the non-existence of transitionary data in the fossil record. And I think it's wrong to assume that the fossil record is full of evidence when it's not. All right? Even if it was, let's say we grant that all to them. Let's give them all the transitionary evidence. The apparatus of evolution, the mechanism, is lacking. Now in science, everything goes back to mechanisms. I can't just say, this turns into this and that's the end of the story. How many of you in here have taken organic chemistry? Okay. You like mechanisms? You taking second semester yet? You doing it this semester? Okay, I was going to say you're in for lots of reaction mechanisms, pages full of mechanisms. In science, we can't just say A turns into B, we have to say how does it turn into B. Now, the mechanism of evolution is supposedly gradual mutations being preserved by natural selection, creating speciation. The problem with that is we don't observe positive mutations that increase the genetic information of an organism. We do see some positive mutations. They're very few and far between, but they're always a reduction of information, okay? Like a feedback loop that gets deleted or something like that. A mutation that benefits the species that increases the, gen the genome of that species with new information that is critical for the theory of evolution has never been observed, right? And after centuries, at least 150 plus years, of bombarding fruit flies with everything known to man, we have yet to see such mutations. So believing that our entire theory rests on that takes a whole lot of faith. And I would say it's not empirically verifiable in the least. Okay? So the mechanism is lacking. Stephen Jay Gould actually described that as well and said the theory of, ev of evolution by gradual mutation, that's my preface, he was affirming punctuated equilibrium, but he defined the 
Darwinian version of evolution, and he said, it is effectively dead despite its persistence as textbook orthodoxy. And that's a direct quote. He was again willing to admit that the evidence for such a mechanism does not exist. And if anybody's heard of such a positive mutation increasing the genetic information of a species, resulting in speciation, if you've heard of such a thing since then, I'd love to hear about it. Right? The only example I ever hear is E. coli bacteria that have mutated to be able to metabolize citrate where in aerobic conditions, where before they could only do it in anaerobic conditions. That's an example I'll hear. Again, that's a deletion of a feedback loop that used to stop it in the presence of oxygen. So it's not new information, but it's a reduction of what was already there. It's not creating anything new, it's just taking away from what was already present. All right, so the apparatus is lacking, the mechanism is lacking. Third, life doesn't arise from non-life. And if we're going to have a metaphysically naturalistic perspective of this universe, we have to describe how life comes from non-life. And abiogenesis, chemical evolution, if you will, is baseless. Of course, we've never seen such a thing. And we all know of how you could have some organic molecules formed in some primordial soup, so to say. But even if we grant the formation of all those organic molecules, nucleotides, and so forth, for them to link up the way they need to is statistically never going to happen. All right? I'll just tell you the statistics on those. To get 100,000 nucleotide base pairs to line up the right way out of a 50-50 mixture, which if they could form in nature, they'd form in a 50-50 mixture, to get them to link up all in one version out of that 50-50 mixture is 1 in 10 to the 37,000th power. Okay? This is an astronomical number many times over the so-called universal probability bound, if you will. Something like this is never going to happen even given the molecular environment that, that we would wish for. All right? So the atheist or the naturalist gets out of this by saying, well, maybe we have a multiverse situation. And out of an infinity of universes, it was bound to happen somewhere. And since we're here, this must be where it happened. Well, of course, now they're relying on faith in this multiverse possibility. And I'd say they're doing so in a very unscientific way. So life doesn't arise from non-life. E, the existence of information and design, and I'll mention it in a little while, are troublesome for the naturalist. And finally, the beginning of the universe from nothing a finite time ago, confirmed by the science, is something that I believe is the final nail in the coffin of a naturalistic evolutionary perspective on the world that we see around us. So again, I believe that this is the so-called only game in town for naturalism, and bias has gotten us there, not empirical data. Another reason that faith continues to have a bad name is arrogant naturalists contributing to faith's bad name. Dawkins, on the topic of evolution, and I know that he's every philosopher's favorite atheist. I say that sarcastically. <laughs> but he is outspoken, and he gets a lot of negative publicity for Christians. He says, and you've all heard this, it is absolutely safe to say that if you meet someone who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane, or wicked, but I'd rather not consider that. So some of these offhand remarks contribute to faith's bad name, I think, whether that be in academia or in society. And again, things like Hitchens' work, God is not great. This perspective that religion causes all these troubles in the world have caused problems for faith. In fact, I've heard many times on this campus, this is no joke, I've heard many times on this campus statements like Christians are the cause of all the world's problems. 
Okay? I mean, as a Christian, I'm never going to say atheists are the cause of all the world's problems, but I've heard statements like that, and I've heard them go unchecked, even from professors, right? And I think that a lot of that originates from some of these negative perspectives from people in these different positions. So this discrimination against faith has left us, I think, in quite a mess. Nietzsche's parable of the madman has literally become a reality in modern-day America. Having removed God from society, we're now experiencing a godless society. Michael Bauman reminds us that ideas have consequences and bad ideas have bad ones. And I think it's an important thing to remember. When we think about the evils caused by religion, and there have been evils caused by religion, I would encourage you that you should never judge a philosophy by its abuse. You should judge it by its correct application. When Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself and to love your enemy and to bless them and to pray for them, and then Christians do the opposite of that, I don't think that's the fault of Christianity, but I think that's the fault of sinful people. And on a side note, that's the whole point of Christianity is that I am sinful and need a savior. But following Christ's command to love my neighbor as myself has never gotten anybody into trouble as far as wrongdoing. Stalin and Mao, though, are just a few examples of an atheistic perspective causing a whole lot of bad. And I'm not going to say that all atheists are bad, but I would say that a complete metaphysical naturalist perspective has had in history some tremendous, tremendous wrongs. So we can't just say it's only religion that does wrong. And just on a side note, in our godless society today, we removed God, we removed a sense of accountability to God, and we are seeing in this society... 3,000 human lives, and by every definition of life that biology has, an unborn baby is a living human being. We're seeing 3,000 of them killed every day in this country. Many in gruesome ways. Our country's become extremely violent, and then we wonder why we see things like the Connecticut shootings. We've told people for so long that they will never give an account to anyone. We've told people for so long that they should do whatever feels good. And now we're seeing people actually following those very commands. I'm not saying that logic got us here, or that reasoning got us here, or that the enlightenment got us here. I'm not saying that. I do think, though, that it's clear that the command, don't do that because it's illogical, carries a lot less weight than don't do that because you're going to give an account to an almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, and just God. Right? There is an aspect, I think, of the mess that we're in that has come from this godlessness in society. Um, I want to read to you a quote from Ravi Zacharias, who Caleb and I also have talked a lot about. And he just quotes Steve Turner saying this, sarcastically, we believe in Marx, Freud, and Darwin. We believe everything is okay, as long as you don't hurt anyone, to the best of your definition of hurt, to the best of your definition of knowledge. We believe in sex before, during, and after marriage. We believe in the therapy of sin. We believe that adultery is fun. We believe that taboos are taboo. We believe that everything is getting better despite evidence to the contrary. Jesus was a good moral teacher, although we think his good morals were really bad. We believe that all religions are basically the same, at least the one that we read was. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. We believe that man is essentially good. It's only his behavior that lets him down. This is the fault of society. Society is the fault of conditions, and conditions are the fault of society. We believe that each man must find the truth that's right for him and that reality will adapt accordingly. The universe will readjust. History will alter. We believe that there is no absolute truth except the truth that there is no absolute truth. We believe in the rejection of creeds and the flowering of individual thought. 
based on that sarcastic statement, he goes on to make this, I think, very enlightening comment. If chance be the father of all flesh, disaster is his rainbow in the sky. And when you hear state of emergency, sniper kills 10, troops on rampage, youths go looting, bomb blasts school, it is but the sound of man worshiping his maker. If there is nothing more than chance and naturalism in this universe, we should not be surprised nor angry when Connecticut mass shootings happen. That should just be the ebb and flow of a chaotic world. We all know that's not the case, though. We know there's something more. We know that's wrong. Unfortunately, our educational and academic institutions have trained a godless and faithless society, and now we're reaping the results of this indoctrination, and I believe we desperately need an awakening. And that's what brings us to the final part of this message, which is an awakening. So an enlightenment, a crisis, and an awakening. So whether it's a sunrise in the morning or a light being turned on during your sleep, enlightenments always precede awakenings. And it's time to evaluate the evidence and take a step of faith that it leads us to. And I think we've got to realize that metaphysical naturalism is unsupportable. That's the end of the story. And it requires a blind leap of faith based on a bias. Supernaturalism, if you will, must be recognized as a reasonable possibility. This includes a confident step of faith based on the evidence. And I'm not saying that all religious perspectives are equal or that all faith is equal. I think that faith should be based on evidence. So here are a couple reasons that I believe there's more than just naturalism. Here are a few reasons that I believe that you can take that next step of faith to believe there's something more truly there. First, the empiricists and rationalists of the Enlightenment and academia ever since has tried hard to contradict the reality of miracles, right? And I think that we can't do this so quickly. You should please, I would ask you to please check out Craig Keener's new two-volume, 1,200-page work. It's a scholarly work titled Miracles. You can just Google it, Craig Keener, Miracles. And for 1,200 pages, he documents miracle claim after miracle claim after miracle claim all through history, including in the present day, and all throughout the world. And he does so from a strong scholarly perspective. You should check it out. But the bottom line is there are miracle claims throughout the world, and we can't just refute them ad hoc, just tossing them out as if nobody is claiming them. And I'll just say from this campus, I've seen students that I believe had real miracles happen in their life including a student that I got to help lead into a relationship with Christ. And shortly thereafter, maybe a month thereafter, he was diagnosed with testicular cancer. And he came to me. He didn't know what to do. He was not doing this for a show. He didn't even know that Christians believed in miracles. And he said, I'm confused. I don't know. Like, what's happening? And I said, you know, I believe in prayer. Prayer doesn't always turn out the way I want. On a side note, as a father, I don't answer my kids' desires the way they want always. So it stands to reason that God wouldn't do that with us all the time. But I said, you know, I don't know how it'll turn out, but I do know there's power in prayer and God can heal you. So I said, let's start praying for you. And we got three or 400 other people to begin praying for this guy, right? And the doctors told them, you're going to have to drop out of school to fight this. This is a big deal. And you have to give it your full attention. So he withdrew from school and went in to get his last checkup before they were going to determine all the treatment and everything. And in this next checkup, they could find nothing. Okay? Was it a fluke? Was it an accident? Did the doctors make a mistake? Who knows? But all I know is I can't just say, oh, there was no miracle. 
We saw another student that wasn't supposed to live through the weekend. We began praying for him. By the Wednesday after that, he was talking, and by the Saturday after that, he was walking. The doctors themselves said this is a miracle. He had a brain injury, bleeding on the brain. He was in a coma, came out within the week. The doctors had no medical explanation. So just to say miracles don't happen is crazy. I believe they do happen all around us if we'll observe and be willing to look. Next, I think there's a nearly universal belief in God. And I think that that says something about a supernatural world. I also think that supernatural experiences, although they're not necessarily the strongest evidence, they have to be considered as a type of evidence. And for me as a believer, as someone that studied science and philosophy, I have a lot of good reasons to base my faith in Christ. But I have to tell you that he relates to me in such a personal way every single day that is superior to any of those reasons in and of themselves. So experience can't just be written off. Similarly, there are good arguments for God. The cosmological argument for God's existence is strong, and I think that most people on all ends of the philosophical spectrum would at least admit that it's a strong argument. Um, the teleological argument for God's existence is strong. Design and information, the seemingly fine-tuned universe that we live in, all scream that this is a product of an intelligent designer, not an accident. Lest you think that this is just a Christian bias that I'm reading into everything, I want to quote Robert Jastrow, who was an agnostic himself before he died. He founded and led the NASA, God the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies. Quite the physicist, quite the intellectual. And he put it this way, now we see the astronomical evidence leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world. Again, not even a Christian, but realizing where things are. And he said this in his book, God and the Astronomers. Now we see the astronomical evidence leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world. The details differ, but the essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. The chain of events leading to man commenced suddenly and sharply at a definite time in, at a definite moment in time, in a flash of light and energy. Now, as we talk about reason and faith and their interplay, listen to the following part of this quote. He says, For the scientist who has lived his life by faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. <laughs> Isn't that great? He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Articulating this point, that reason and empiricism and the human mind in and of themselves can only get us so far. And in the end, we come full circle to where we began with theology and faith. I think we should also consider, as we consider other arguments for God's existence, the moral argument for God's existence. I think that you can have other arguments for why we might feel moral. Natural selection could give you good reasons to feel moral about things, but it's not objective nor binding. It doesn't determine how you should act, just how you feel about acting. And if natural selection is valid and might makes right, then why not do whatever benefits your survival? Right? Even if you feel like that's immoral, if naturalism is all there is, there's no true immorality. So steal, kill, destroy, whatever, if it'll benefit your survival. Right? Survival of the fittest, if naturalism is all there is. Now, that being said, <laughs> I always like to throw these in for um, 
some of my atheist friends, because I think that it's good for them to have something to fight against at the end of this conversation. So I guess we should consider ontological arguments for God's existence, even though they seem quite fishy. They also seem like there might be philosophically something to them. Or my favorite, and Caleb's least favorite, the transcendental arguments for God's existence. And uh, the fact that science, math, logic, and even moral laws exist and should not and cannot be broken. And I don't think they're explicable in and of themselves. I think they require a lawgiver, so to say. Anyway, not all faith claims are, val are equally valid. So here are a few great reasons for faith in Christ. Because coming from my faith in Christ, I want to leave you with some things that get forgotten in this debate about faith. All faiths are lumped together, and people think faith is, is bogus. And if you're an intellectual, you won't depend on faith whatsoever. Well, when we look at history, and if we can know anything about history, we can know that Jesus actually lived on this planet. Okay? There are four times as many historical references to Christ from the first 150 years after his life than there are to Tiberius Caesar, who ruled the known world during his lifetime. That's phenomenal. The statement that there's no evidence for Christ is so ignorant, it does not occur in academia in the settings of historical studies of Christ. And those 42 historical references to Christ were not all written by Christians. Many of them were from secular sources. and In fact, nine of them came from secular sources. It's interesting to note that there are only nine secular references to Tiberius also. So yet again, just from the secular setting, there's equal evidence for Christ's life as there is for the ruler of the known world of his day. Similarly, all these historical references corroborate the gospel narrative. And we see a lot of what we actually see in the gospels. Um, concerning the resurrection, and I think this also has to be considered. If Christ rose from the dead, everything rises or falls on that event. All philosophy, all science, everything, if he predicted his own death and resurrection, it all rises or falls on that. And the reality is that preserved in history, we have evidence for his resurrection. Dr. Gary Habermas has devoted his life to this. I've interviewed him multiple times on the show here on The God Solution. And he's a great, great, uh, he actually chairs the Department of Philosophy at Liberty. And he's a, just a wonderful gentleman. But anyway, he's come up with the minimal facts for the Resurrection, and these are the facts that everybody, not everybody, but the majority of academics would all agree are true, right? Nothing but the fringe would disagree with this. And the minimal facts are that Jesus died by Roman crucifixion, that he was buried in a private tomb, that the disciples were initially discouraged, that Jesus' tomb was found empty shortly after his burial. That's significant. That's even preserved in hostile sources that the tomb was empty on the third day. And there's no reference anywhere in history to a body ever being found. The disciples and numerous others were convinced that they saw the risen Christ. In fact, 500 eyewitnesses were convinced they saw the risen Christ. Their lives were completely transformed even to the point of them being willing to die. Now, people oftentimes die for a belief, but they never die for a known lie. And all but one of his disciples went on to die for what they knew to be true, the fact that they saw the risen Christ. The story of the resurrection took place very early at the beginning of Christian history. In fact, a lot of people would say that the Christian creed found in 1 Corinthians 15 dates to the very year of Christ's death and resurrection. 
Um, Their testimony and preaching took place initially in Jerusalem. The gospel from the beginning centered on the resurrection. The disciples would often say, you know that he rose from the dead. In statements like that, they weren't trying to cover anything up, but they were appealing to common knowledge. Sunday was the primary day for gathering and worshiping because the resurrection happened then. James went from skeptic to believer because of seeing the risen Christ, and Saul, who later became Paul, did as well. So across the academic spectrum, these points would all be accepted. If the resurrection happened, we can't just disregard it. It means everything. Similarly, prophecy, and gosh, I would love to go through it. I talked about it on the radio yesterday. There are about 1,000 prophecies in Scripture, and these aren't unfalsifiable, wishy-washy prophecies. We're talking Isaiah 45 saying 150 years before Cyrus was born, what he would do, who he would be, and what his name would be. Okay, We're talking Daniel in chapters 8 and 9 prophesying 500 years of Israel's history, including what many scholars would believe was the very day that the Messiah rode into Jerusalem to be crucified before his crucifixion. We're talking about Ezekiel, according to some scholars, prophesying that Israel would be formed as a nation again in 1948, written a few thousand years ago, corroborated in our lifetimes, right? Jesus alone fulfilled over 100 prophecies and many that he could not have done himself, where he'd be born, how he would die, how he would live, so forth. Prophecy, I think, screams for our attention. If there's accurate and fulfilled prophecy anywhere, we can't just write it off. And it's evidence for something far more than a metaphysical, naturalistic world. Finally, as somebody that has studied a lot of science, I love the scientific statements in the Bible. The Bible talks about the expansion of the universe, radioactive decay, entropy, and many more. The the Bible is not a scientific textbook, okay? But it makes statements that I think bear God's fingerprints. With all this being said, I want to conclude with an invitation to faith, and at least an invitation to consider the possibility of faith, to be open-minded about the ability to have an aspect of faith in your knowledge, and to realize ultimately you already do, right, about so much in life. And I want to specifically invite you to consider faith in Christ. And as I say that, I want to say that an awakening requires intellectual integrity and humility, Faith is taking that step based on the evidence beyond where the evidence alone can take you. Um, I think it's important to realize that we can't ignore evidence by faith. Right? It takes faith to ignore prophecy. I've brought prophecy up with people before and they just go, ah, that's ridiculous. Like, that's ridiculous. You can't just write this off. Right? Um, but I think that it's important to follow it by faith. Here are 10 great reasons to put your faith in Christ. And if I could summarize it, why would I encourage someone to put their faith in Christ? I'd say, here are 10 great reasons. Number one, you don't have any better option. It's kind of blunt. Nobody else has promised you what he does and then backed it up by actually beating death himself. If there's any hope that this world has ever had it more than just this world, he was the one that actually showed that with his life, and that's preserved in history. Number two, you'll have help to become the person that you know you should be. The Bible says that when we put our faith in Christ, he puts his very spirit in us. And the Holy Spirit changes us to be loving and joyful and peaceful, to be different than we are in and of ourselves. So you'll have help to become the person that you know you should be. 
Next, you'll find the forgiveness you're looking for. We all have consciences and we all have regrets. And in Christ, I can have forgiveness for my mistakes and I can live without regret. You'll experience true peace. You'll find answers to life's biggest questions. You'll find fulfillment in him. You'll have a hope that nothing and no one can ever take away. You'll experience the love that you've always longed for. You'll be confident of the eternal life he promises you. Jesus put it on the line in John chapter 6. He said, if you believe in me, I will raise you up. And then he backed that up with his own resurrection. I figure nobody else has ever done anything like it, so I'll take him at his word. I'll believe in him by faith, based on the evidence, realizing that if anybody ever had the ability to deliver on that promise, it's him. And finally, the ultimate reason, I believe, to believe in Christ is it's true. We know from history, we know from all these accounts that this is true. This isn't just make-believe or a blind leap of faith. This is a confident step of faith based on the evidence. That being said, I want to summarize Christ's main message because a lot of people get this really messed up. Christ's message isn't one of going to church on Sundays and making sure you do everything right and telling everybody how wrong they are. That's not the message of Christ. The message of Christ is that God loves each and every one of you. He says that his thoughts for you outnumber the sand of the seas. I mean, just wrap your mind around that. It's incredible to have somebody that would love you that way. He says that Nate is a huge sinner and that all of us are. And that on my own, I am absolutely incompetent that I could never make it to him. He's perfect and I'm imperfect. He also says that there's a solution to that. I shared that with somebody once and he goes, if that's true, why are you Christians always so happy? I said, yeah, that is pretty miserable to be separated from God because of my sin. But the reality is that Jesus came and lived a perfect life and died on the cross. He paid for my sins so that if I put my faith in him, I could be forgiven, not because of my performance, but because of his, right? That being said, I think it'd be cool to close with his exact words. I've talked a little bit about Christ. A lot of times people say, oh, he's a great moral teacher or whatever. We do surveys of students, and the average approval rating, if you will, for Christ is 8.6 out of 10 this year in the freshman class. <laughs> so I think he has a higher approval rating than Obama or pretty much any other figure in history. <laughs> he's he's uh, popular. But I think a lot of times people have this high approval rating based on ignorance. They don't know what he really said. So here's what he said, and I'll close with this. He said, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't be stumbling through the darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. All who put their trust in me will no longer remain in the darkness. My purpose is to give life in all its fullness. I have called you friends. Anyone who listens to my teaching and obeys me is wise. Anyone who hears my teaching and ignores it is foolish. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must put aside your selfish ambition, shoulder your cross, and follow me. How do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul in the process? Sin is unbelief in me. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. 
These are what make a man unclean. Everyone who sins is a slave of sin. They will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. If you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. If you try to keep your life for yourself, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find true life. Those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death into life. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. Everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Turn from your sins and believe this good news. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Be sure of this, I am with you always. I will never fail you, I will never forsake you. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. I stand at the door and knock. If you hear me calling and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal as friends. So I would encourage you, investigate him. Investigate a life of faith and specifically investigate Christ's claims. And realize that there's more than mere questioning. I think that you can have confidence about so much more than just reason and just the empirical data can give you. So that's all I have to share, and I'd love to hear some questions and spend some time discussing. I know it's probably not your typical philosophical talk, so to say, but uh, I'm glad that I had the opportunity to come and spend the night with you. Any questions? Oh, there's Oh, I know. Yeah, so faith is taking a step based on the evidence beyond where the evidence alone can lead you. Cool. Based on that definition. So faith is going beyond the evidence. Suppose you have a set of evidence and it's consistent with going 15 different ways. How do you choose which of the 15 to take? You can't feel the evidence because it's going beyond the evidence. Could you name a specific example of evidence leading 15 different ways? Suppose that you have evidence that somebody went down a particular trail, mm -hmm. the trail splits, and there's footprints going down both trails. So here's a case where your evidence won't tell you which way to go. So if you take one path or the other, I assume it would be on the kind of faith that mm -hmm. you Well, I would, I would say, too, that there's a need for more evidence, right? And I think that that happens oftentimes in faith perspectives, right? There are a lot of people that might follow, and I'm going to be careful not to disparage other religious perspectives, but I'll say that there are a lot of religious perspectives that, that would have a lot of reasons not to trust them, right? And that might include claims in their, in their religious texts that are inconsistent with reality, that are incoherent with themselves, and so forth. So I would say that in a case like this, we should evaluate which evidence is best down which track, so to say. So That can't be it, because faith is going beyond the evidence. So there can't be evidence that tells you to go right or left, it wouldn't be faith. Faith is taking, yeah, taking the step that the evidence leads us to, but the evidence can't take us there in and of itself. So what does that mean? 
So I would say, I think that's a little bit of an abstract example, but I would say something like which shoe prints match the ones that you're looking for. And so really you're saying just take your evidence as far as it goes and go further. I would say that that's important, but I would say that based on the evidence that we have, we can make good assumptions about the next step. And we don't know that fully. There is going to be a lack of knowledge about which trail to go down in some cases, but I think we can know that better in some instances or others. In your trail, for example, depending on what footprints we see going right or left, we'd have much better reason to go right than left or vice versa. So I'm not saying that we just indiscriminately choose to quit following evidence at some indiscriminate point. But we do our best to follow the evidence as far as it will take us. And when it can take us no longer, we take the best step that we can based on the evidence that we have. And I think that in a lot of cases, that would include, for example, realizing if I have historical evidence for a resurrection, I can't just ignore it. And that does put Christ in a complete universe of his own. If I do have evidence that prophecy really happens and that prophecy in scripture has been, been validated throughout history, I cannot write this off. This is compelling. This is powerful. Um, and so I think that I would follow the evidence as far as I can. But finally, at the end of the day, I can't make God materialize in front of me. I can't touch him. So there is an aspect of faith beyond where the evidence alone can go. So, so what you're really saying mm -hmm. is taking a step based on evidence without certainty. You're following the evidence as far as it goes. You're just taking more reasonable options. So say the path example you used, and mm -hmm. you had more evidence for one trail. You aren't certain that it was true. But given you have more evidence, it would be more reasonable for you to go left. I think it'd be... I think it'd be more reasonable. And I think certainty is a, it's a pretty big word to be using. Of course, I don't know a whole lot that we could be absolutely certain of rather than you know, some basic core fundamental beliefs, maybe. But at the same time, I think that um, I can be as close to certain about my experience of Christ as I can to anything yeah, else in this life. Exactly. So I think that it is based on the evidence. It's not the lack of certainty, but um, maybe the lack of proof, if you'll use that word. And I know we've talked about that word some too. So maybe with Justin's case, the most reasonable thing would be to just be agnostic. It was actually a case in which you had 15, 15 ways, and they're all equally the same. Maybe the most reasonable thing would be to be agnostic. So I, I guess, I mean, that's what I would do. I mean, if, if that was actually the case, but I mean, it would probably be pretty hard to actually come up against something in which you had 15 options that were just as equally reasonable. What? I mean, and gener generally, it seems like you come up against contradictory things and you find which one's more reasonable. And if I can't, then I just withhold from. Choosing one, I guess. That would be the most reasonable thing to do in the situation. And I'd say, let's, let's up the ante a little bit. What if the path you choose actually has consequences on your own being? So it behoove you not to just be an agnostic and sit down at the branch in the path, right? Or maybe a loved one is in need of your help. So I would say that the higher the stakes, the more I don't want to just sit and question everything. 
I want to know. If you were in such a situation, that would be interesting. But I would say, I don't see that kind of a situation as it regards faith specifically in Christ. Well, I think we're so then you're not talking about faith when it comes to Christ, because faith is supposed to be moving beyond the evidence. No, no, no. I'm saying there's not equal evidence in 15 directions. Right? Some faith claims have a lot more evidence than so others. Say I believe in Christ. Mm -hmm. How am I jumping ahead of the evidence, given there's all these evidence that he resurrected and how exists and so on? Okay. I have not seen him with my own eyes. So Jesus sure. actually said, blessed are those that don't see, right? There's an aspect of faith for me in considering my closest friend to be someone I have not personally seen with my own two eyes. Does that mean he doesn't express himself in real ways to me? Not at all. My experience of Christ is extremely real on a daily basis, whether that's in the things I'm learning or the things that I'm being prepared for. And if you talk to anybody from the Christian faith, you'll probably hear story after story after story after story after story of God teaching them some issue over and over and over and over and over in a very short time frame that directly related to their life. They'll experience God personally leading them, personally teaching them, personally guiding them. So yeah, I have a lot of um, certainty in my relationship with Christ, but at the end of the day, I don't get to touch him. I don't get to see him, right? You could maybe word it that way. <laughs> can I bother you about another issue? So this I would is, love to hear it, yeah. Just to add one more point on this, though, but before you be gone, is that you do a lot of attribution. You say, well, I have this experience with Christ, and, that's, uh, and you attribute all those things to it. There's other people who have the same experiences go through life, and they don't need to do that attribution of, uh, to that. Uh, and... Uh, uh, and, and yet, there is um, uh, a fulfillment, an experiential fulfillment. I like in Buddhism, for example. Um, and Buddhism has its deities, and it has its ways of helping uh, through issues. Uh, and that's completely independent of that. And there's other forms of spirituality that have that. So what you claim to know is an attribution that you put on something. Is that, are you done? Yeah. Okay, so what I would say is I'm talking about experiences in a confirmational sense, not in a directive sense. I don't believe in Christ because I've had these experiences. I know some people that have had very powerful experiences that maybe led them to faith in Christ. I'm not that kind of guy. I kind of tend to shy away from the, the strong experiential perspective. I really, growing up, I grew up in a Christian family, to be completely honest, and there's my bias. But you know what? I absolutely question my faith year after year after year after year after year. And I think I work with a lot of Christians, and most Christians have experienced this as well, where they've had to go through this process of coming to terms with what they believe, not just because it was told them. Maybe not everybody goes through that. But I had to really look at it. <laughs> was, no, it was before that. And then those, though, those, though, really entertain me at that point in my life. But here's an example, evolution. When I was in high school, I grew up in Romania all my teenage years. And Tim remembers that. Tim is a good friend of mine. Um, 
we go way back. He was my dad's best friend back in like college days, I guess. But anyway, um, all the the all my teenage years, I was in Romania. I was homeschooled because obviously I couldn't be in the Romanian schools. And we had a professor that came over just to teach us. But I was so interested in this issue of evolution that in high school I got Campbell's third edition biology. If I'm not mistaken, Fort Lewis still uses Campbell Campbell's biology. Maybe is that right? But it's not the third edition anymore. It's like the 19th edition or something like that. Okay? But it was, I think, around 1,000 pages. And I read the thing cover to cover and took meticulous notes on it because I really wanted to know for myself what's at stake here. Am I believing complete nonsense? Or is there something to really get at? Um, so I would say that having studied a lot of the evidence, I came to a place where I needed to make a decision by faith based on the evidence. Having made that decision, Christ has confirmed that to me in very real ways. Just another one. Root, when I first met you tonight, I told you about my prior experience in the environmental industry, kind of like yourself. I ran the air quality program for the Southern Ute Indian Tribe when I graduated from this uh, campus with a degree in chemistry. And I left that after two years, which was the plan all along to go into full-time ministry. But I left a very secure and very good-paying job and I was slated, the program manager position was open, and I was the shoe-in for that. And um, even after I came on staff up here, my old boss came and found me on campus, and he said, I'd like you to apply for the program manager position. And I said, you couldn't convince me to apply for a million dollars. But when I left that job, I joined a staff team that has zero guaranteed paycheck. This is no joke, Okay. I haven't been guaranteed a paycheck in, uh, in about nine years, right? I've trusted by faith since that day that if God wanted me to be doing what I'm doing, that he would provide. I see him miraculously providing month after month after month after month. I've never missed a mortgage payment. I've never missed a car payment. I've never missed putting food on the table for my kids. Um, I can tell you in a million different ways God confirms himself to me in very real ways. But I think that is after the step of faith. I think a lot of times I make the step based on the evidence that I have, which maybe isn't everything. And then uh, over time, that's confirmed. Nick, can I ask a question? Yes. So um, I'm confused about a couple of things. I'm confused about a lot of things. Um, You're in the right place. <laughs> it is philosophy. It, um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm, I'm way back with your dictionary.com definition. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because what I heard you, we, when you read that dictionary.com definition, mm -hmm. you seemed to want to distance yourself from um, the, the definition of faith that, that was necessarily uh, moral or religious or had to do with deities and worships and belief systems and things like that. And you said, I, I think that has problems, if I heard you right, I'd really like to work in this other area where faith is, um, is a recognition that in all areas of life uh, we only have so much evidence mm -hmm. and at certain points in time we have to uh, take this step. I mean, you said, I don't want to call it a leap. I think it's reasonable. I think, uh, I think at one point you even characterized faith as being contained within knowledge, which I thought was kind of an interesting conceptualization of faith as being contained within knowledge. So,
So I was prepared for a talk that was then a much broader, more inclusive kind of presentation of faith, of, of how does faith uh, you know, work in a non-religious way when it, when it is an action, when it's a, a commitment, when it's uh, a commitment mm -hmm. beyond what evidence would lead you to do. And yet then the whole talk actually seemed to be less about that and more about the dictionary.com definition. Faith is about a religious system. So in academia, I think the religious aspect of faith is what's mostly criticized. That's been the traditional problem. In fact, it's been often stated as the, this battle between religion and science, right? That's kind of the statement that we often hear. I don't have a problem with all the dictionary.com definition. Confidence or trust in a person or thing, that's great. That could be my wife, that could be Jesus Christ, that could be you, right? Uh, belief in God or in the doctrines or teachings of religion, I don't have a problem with that being an aspect of faith. I think the main part that I have trouble with from that definition, and I didn't want to make the whole talk about that definition, mm -hmm. I just think that there can be a, a better statement of it. Belief that is not based on proof. I think that would kind of encompass all belief, if I'm not mistaken. Right? Proof is a pretty high standard. Mm -hmm. So I think that's maybe a layperson description or something that or a dictionary.com <laughs> dictionary definition. So I'd like to really get at what you said, yeah. this commitment based on the best evidence that I have. I think that's a, a better working definition. Uh -huh. How am I going to decide to live my life based on what I know to be true? And I don't think that faith is just a component of knowledge or knowledge of faith. Here's the interplay that I see going on. And I think this relates directly to this definition. Faith and knowledge are mutually supportive. Right? They're not contradictory towards each other. Think of it like this. When you go rappelling, any rock climbers in here? I'm not a big rock climber. Sorry to say it. But we run these projects every summer where we take students rappelling. And it's called Crush Fear. It's a lot of fun. We help them deal with personal fears and relational fears and all these things for two weeks. What could be more fun than scaring college students for two weeks, right? But anyway, it's profoundly life-changing. They leave and, I mean, we get letters back year after year saying that it changed their life forever. But one of the things that we do is we take them repelling. And you wouldn't be scared. What's your name again? Colin. Colin would have the time of his life. He'd love he it. The day. <clears throat> there you have it. He repelled the day. But a lot of these students are shaking so badly that they all, I mean, crying, shaking, they almost can't do it. And some can't, you know, some just can't go off the cliff. They're just terrified. And I, you know, the first time I tried to repel, I was in the same place. Now, what if I was taking you out, Colin, and I said, let's go rock climbing together, okay? And he said, I don't know this guy, but I'll I'll go with him. And I get there, and I pull out like some nylon twine that, that you'd see on packaging or something like that. And I said, let's, let's rappel off this 200-foot cliff. And I say, I think I saw somewhere that this twine will hold up to 200 pounds. Okay, what is your knowledge? How is your knowledge going to impact your faith in stepping off that cliff, committing to stepping off that cliff? And you're, even if you did, you're not going to take a step off the cliff. See, your lack of knowledge is going to limit your faith. You're not going to be willing to take a step of faith based on the knowledge you have. Whereas, if I come and I have a rope that I pull out of the package and you see the rating and all that, and you have every reason to believe it's legitimately a good rope, your knowledge is probably 
going to lead you to step off the cliff, but not if I'm belaying or anything like that, right? Not if I'm on the top. But see, knowledge, I think, can support faith. And similarly, faith, I think, can support knowledge. What if I was skeptical about all the scientific advancements that have preceded me? Or what if I was skeptical about all the historical knowledge that we have? My knowledge would be limited as a result of it. So similarly, I think my faith in taking certain things, maybe historical statements or scientific realities, my faith that Kant had something reasonable to say, or my faith that some of Einstein's theories were legitimate, helps me grow in knowledge in a lot of different areas. So I think faith and knowledge are mutually supportive and not mutually contradictory, if that makes sense. But I don't necessarily think they're a component mm -hmm. of each other, but maybe two different um, maybe two different bricks in the same building, so to say. Two. <clears throat> so what I was going to ask you earlier, um, this was actually about the crisis and the mm -hmm. Enlightenment, the Enlightenment um, era, you wanted to establish that we can only know things through faith. Right, so something like that, we're all committed. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say we can only know through faith, but there is an aspect of faith in all knowledge, I think. There's an aspect. Mm -hmm. Well, nevertheless, if you had defined that way, my question So I'll ask a different question. So there are two arguments you gave um, for God. There's this fine-tuning argument, mm -hmm. and there's this argument that we can't explain how life grows. Yes. You know, this life rising would be a statistical impossibility. It seems to me like you should stick with one and give up another. So Why is that? fine tuning <clears throat> um, all these natural laws um, are in place and these natural laws need to be in place in order for life to arise or something like that. Um, this argument from Abiogenesis, however, is gonna say even with these laws in place, life rising from non life is going to be a statistical impossibility. Mm -hmm. So essentially the fine tuning argument he's saying is you need all these physical laws for life to be a statistical impossibility. No, I think you're wrong in this. You need all those life, all those laws for life to be possible on this earth, but none of those laws can cause life to come to exist out of pure matter. I think they both go well together, and they don't contradict each other at all. And that's precisely the Christian view, is that God created this universe for human beings, and so that we could discover him in the universe around us. Similarly, we don't believe that human beings came to exist purely through naturalistic processes. Some theistic evolutionists might go that route. That's a whole different topic for a different time. But even they would say that God directed the process. But fundamentally, as Christians, we believe across the spectrum that, that human beings were created by God and that this universe was as well, and that this universe, if it wasn't created exactly the way it is, life would not be sustainable on this planet. One of my favorite examples, it's snowy and icy outside. Water, when it freezes, when it, when it goes from liquid to solid, it hydrogen bonds with itself and starts to spread out as far as it can, and you get this, um, this very broadened lattice, which makes water less dense as a solid than as a liquid. And it seems like an interesting thing, maybe a curiosity, but the reality is if that wasn't the case with water, and if I'm not mistaken, water is the only molecule 
on Earth that's less dense as a liquid than as um, less dense as a solid than as a liquid. If that weren't the case, then water would freeze across the tops of the oceans and it would sink and then a new layer would freeze and it would sink and a new layer would freeze and it would sink and it would be only a matter of time before our planet, whose heat is buffered by our oceans, was a frozen block of ice. I mean, that one function of the water molecule itself allows life to be possible on this planet. What's that got to do with faith? I think that, in addition to the countless other seemingly fine-tuned aspects of this universe leave us wondering, is this truly just an accident? When I come into this room and I see table set and chair set and PowerPoints and computers, I think I can take by faith that this is designed for <laughs> meetings and speeches and so forth. When I see design throughout the universe and certain things that exist only one time, one way, and that very thing lends itself to our ability to survive, I can't help but wonder. That's not the only reason to believe in a God, but I think that that fine-tuning is compelling evidence to consider when I consider all the evidence. But I, I, I do think that, and I like this last question, Kim, I do think that I, that's still some of the problem I'm having um, is the definition of faith, because the example you gave about walking into this room and seeing the lights on and seeing the podium and microphone and chairs and everything. You said, I, I take it by faith that this was here for, for speaking. But it seems to me that you don't need to take that by faith because you have evidence. But that's the actual evidence. And so that's the thing that we're struggling with. At least that's the thing that I'm struggling with is that doesn't seem to take any faith at all. So I walked into the room, the lights were on, there were people sitting here. Somebody said there's going to be a talk. I came, I saw posters. I had tons and tons and tons of evidence and no faith whatsoever at all. I think there is faith. No, no, I'm just, mm -hmm. I just, just stick with mm -hmm. me for just okay. a moment on this one thing. Mm -hmm. So what, what troubles me, what I get hung up on is how, what, is, what does faith actually look like beyond where evidence goes? Great what does question. faith actually look like beyond where evidence goes? Because it seems to me that when you talk about this evidence or this faith beyond where the evidence goes, you keep talking about, about it as that's where the best evidence leads us. Well, that would seem to be very reasonable, so why don't we just call it reason? Why do we have to call it faith? Then? That's a wonderful I question. I like yeah. reasonable. <laughs> wonderful question. I'm, I'm glad. I mean, we're... Closing in on 30 minutes? Yeah, sorry about that. No, 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 no. I would, if anybody has anything else, I would like to get as many in yeah. as we can. But that, I think, is, is something that I'd love to, to address in closing. And if there's more, I'd love to hear that too. But fundamentally, let's say I can convince every one of you in this room that Jesus was a historical figure. I don't think that would be hard to convince you of. If you look at the history, you'll come to that conclusion. Similarly, let's say I could convince you that the gospel accounts written by eyewitnesses and those that interviewed eyewitnesses are accurate, okay? Some people might say, well, they have miracle claims. That's, that's, that's not a problem unless you presuppose metaphysical naturalism. <laughs> also, if you compare Luke in writing in Acts, 84 statements in Acts are historically confirmed, yet right alongside these historically confirmed statements, he has miracle statements, and not in an exaggerated sketchy type of way, in a very matter-of-fact type of way. So if I could convince you that the gospel 
narratives are accurate. If I could convince you that Jesus really did rise from the dead, you might start to think there really is something to this. If I could convince you that all 100 prophecies about Christ actually were fulfilled in Christ, and I think I could do that, because Christ again came after those prophecies. All the, all the, some skeptics will try to say that prophecy is post-written history. In other words, the book of Daniel, we don't have a copy earlier than Alexander the Great, so it's incredibly accurate prophecy of Alexander the Great must be post-written history and then fudged to make it look like it predated him. There are problems with that, including Josephus' account that Alexander the Great saw the book of Daniel and the prophecy and considered it true of himself. That's in um, Antiquities of the Jews, you I guess. You, you, I'm getting there spending, real quickly. No, really, you're spending your time trying to bring lots of evidence. seems like what you're struggling with is um, ever coming up with justification for your belief and, and, and ways to convince somebody else that they should believe the way you do. Uh, because that, 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 that always comes back to your focus. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and you get away from um, just an exploration of faith as a concept. Mm -hmm. You want to keep bringing it back to, well, I believe this, and, here, and then you go to all these things. And this is a, I think that you will find that most of the people in the world don't have any problem with Jesus. In fact, you know, most of the people in the world probably know about him and, and don't have any problem. What they have a problem with is Christians and Christians trying to impose their beliefs. And one of their beliefs is that, is that people are not going to be saved. And whether they know it or not, it's your job, your charge, to go and convince them that they need to be saved. And, and in order to do that, you have to justify your belief system to them. So I, I, I think, mm -hmm. I mean, because you keep coming back, you we talk about faith, and you keep going back to the Bible, you keep going back to quoting all these things as, as well, here's the evidence. Here's the evidence. See, there's all this circumstantial evidence there, and so therefore, you should believe what I believe. So I, mean, I don't know what your con conclusion is and what your purpose of faith, well, you know, why? Why go down the path? What is the... You, you, that's not what you... You haven't explored that. I've explored it. Here's... And that helps answer Bill's question. And that is fundamentally, we can talk about evidence all day. And maybe I could convince you of the evidence in many regards. But ultimately, it takes faith to take that final step to say, I am willing to base my eternity on Christ and to trust him with my life and my future. That's a step of faith based on the evidence. And that's where faith plays in. And I guess in summary, if you're asking if I want everyone to come to know Christ, I absolutely do. And I don't think that this is a bigoted perspective at all. I think that every good math teacher wants his students to know math. And I think that every good chemistry teacher surely wanted me to learn my chemistry. You know, and my physics professors, gosh, I remember poor Dr. Norton had to suffer through it with me and help me come to understand physics. And, and the reality is that when I love somebody, I want what's best for them. And if my worldview is true, and I think there's a darn lot of evidence to convince me and others that it is, there is a real hell. And real people that I really love will spend an eternity apart from God in that place. And if I love you, Root, the last thing I'm going to do is ignore that. 
honestly, I don't know a Christian that enjoys making things socially awkward. You know, I don't know anybody that thinks. <laughs> but whether there are a few or not, here, here's, here's the point. Whether there are a few or not, and I talk to a whole lot of them, the reality is that if I love people and I really believe something, and I believe that their very eternity is at stake, then I'll be compelled to lovingly share that with them. Now, should I badger them about it? Should I beat them over the head with it? Absolutely not. But should I do my best to present a logical and reasonable case for it? I think I should do my best to do that. So I guess 30 minutes after the hour, we close on the, on the dime. I guess we're one or two minutes late. But that being said, let me throw out a few resources. I would encourage you, if you're interested in this, to look more. Who Made God is a great book that I recently read by Dr. Edgar Andrews who is a physicist who's debated Dawkins and others. Uh, so check it out. I would also encourage you to get Reasonable Faith by William Lane Craig, and I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by um, Norman Geisler, who I quoted earlier. And of course, you can always listen to The God Solution if you're interested more. Or if you want to debate me, Caleb, or anybody, come on the show and let's have a little discussion on the air. But anyway, thank you guys for having me. Thank you.